Hello and welcome to another edition of the CND podcast. We are here today with Christy and Co. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the pharmacy market, looking at the market review from Christy and Co. and talking about some of the challenges faced by the industry and what the future holds. We are hoping to give an in-depth insight into what is happening in the pharmacy market, who the winners are, and what direction the market was going in. If you're thinking of buying a pharmacy or you already own one, then I strongly recommend you do have a listen to this podcast. Let's start off by meeting who our speakers are from Christian Co. So without no further ado. Hi Nana, yeah, my name's John Booth. I work out the Leeds office. I broker sales in the pharmacy market for Christian Co. across Yorkshire and Humber and the Northwest, basically Holter Anglesey. So we've got Carl. Hi there. I cover the pharmacy sales for Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the mainly the northeast of England, and I have been doing so for the last 10 years. Thank you very much for joining us. And last but not least, we've got Tony. Hi, I'm Tony Evans, and I lead Christian Co's pharmacy team across the UK. We set up the pharmacy team in early 2010, and since then we've become the largest agent offering brokerage services across the UK. Great, lovely to have you guys. Thank you so much for giving us some time and joining us for this podcast. I've been having a look at the market review and I've had a read through. It's very interesting uh, piece of work. I learned quite a few things that I wasn't aware of myself and I was surprised by quite a few of the things in there as well. So just a quick question. When it came to the UK pharmacy sector and the ownership, we did a few articles here at the CND about pharmacy closures and temporary closures and those kind of things. Do you guys think the trend in closures indicates a decline in community pharmacy? If you look at the sector, it's continued and will continue to see some permanent and temporary closures. I think the permanent closures have been mainly down to viability of pharmacies and more so restricted to corporate stock rather than independent stock. The temporary closures bit is a different issue, I think. I think from that point of view, there's been a lot of challenges to pharmacists in terms of pharmacist resource and general employment resource that they've had. And that has affected their ability to discharge their services effectively. And therefore, they've had to to undertake temporary closures from that point of view. So I think that 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 is an issue that we're seeing just as a temporary issue at the moment. And we hope that some stage in the near future, that will start to work its way through. But certainly, I don't think you can look at it as a decline in the pharmacy sector or the the service that pharmacy is offering to patients. I think it's just a temporary issue, which is a challenge that the the sector has seen, certainly over the course of this year and coming out of the two pandemic years as such. That is a very interesting answer, really. So I used to be a pharmacist myself. I say used to be. I'm still on the register, so I'm still a pharmacist. But I basically left community pharmacy mainly because of the pandemic. Do you think the pandemic has played a role in this decline and in this closures? Definitely so. If if you look at what pharmacy has had to endure and the service that they've actually provided over the pandemic and continue to provide now, it's no doubt it's been an incredibly challenging role and an incredibly challenging two, two and a half years. And I think you can go into any pharmacy and you can see the level and the pace at which staff have to work. You know, nobody should see this as an easy sector. It's a hard role. You know, having had two years of it, you can understand that some pharmacists have decided to vote with their feet and they've been attracted or enticed away from community pharmacy into PCN 
and GP roles through this additional roles you know, support scheme that's been provided to doctors. So it's a real challenge to the sector. And as a result of that, obviously, with the decline in numbers that you're actually seeing offering service to the sector, we've seen that knock on to locum rates, etc. But I'm sure we'll talk about that later anyway. We'll get to that. It was also a very interesting part of the report. I think I'll come to you with this one, John. Like you said, it's mainly the multiples that are having real issue with like closures and with temporary closures. With localized, independent and smaller pharmacy groups, do you think they are able to offer more adaptable services and therefore adapt quicker to these situations, sort of like the pandemic? Therefore, they are able to survive better in this climate and with this change? Yeah, I think absolutely. If you look at the temporary closures, as Tony stated, you know, the bulk of the temporary closures are from the, the larger, the corporates, if you want to call them that, or the, the very large independent operators. If it's possible, contractors are, are working even harder than they did during the pandemic and continue to do so because they have one branch, they may have 10 branches, but tend to be either family run businesses with a couple of pharmacists within that directorship of the business and they're prepared to put in hard graft and get up early, get into those pharmacies where there is a need to keep those doors open and and continue service provision. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, certainly in the independent sector. I've been speaking to a few of my friends that are thinking of buying a pharmacy. As a first-time buyer, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine and we're having a conversation about this whole being prescription-based or being service-based. And he said as a first-time buyer, he would always want to make his pharmacy more prescription-based because that is the bread and butter. And I kind of suggest that maybe it'd be worth it if they made a pharmacy 70% service-based as a new pharmacy and 30% prescription-based. And he was adamant that would never work. What do you think about that? That'd be difficult. The bulk of the funding just now is dispensing prescriptions. So although the younger first-time buyers, they tend to exploit services more than say someone that's retiring i'm not saying all people retiring are not doing services but a lot of them are not used to doing them so the newcomers to the market will tend to embrace these services to help boost income and profitability but it's still a smaller part of the reimbursement from the nhs so dispensing is still the bigger part in the overall income of of the pharmacy and that's the way the funding is set up. Just as a little bit of a barometer, obviously we've just come back from the pharmacy show. We've had a good two days at the pharmacy show a couple of weeks ago. And it's interesting that we, we saw both sides of the equation. We saw, As Carl said, we saw some of the more long-standing operators who are looking to retire from the sector, partly due to you know the development of services, etc., and thinking now's the time to go. But on the other side, we saw a lot of first-time buyers and new entrants to the market. And obviously, they're coming out of pharmacy college or pharmacy university, qualified, but also trained to do services. And I think a lot of those new first-time buyers see the the service element a real opportunity. But as Carl says, the challenge is that the way the funding models currently stands is that most of the income that a pharmacy will generate is from its dispensing activity, not the, the general services. But there are plenty of services that pharmacists can actually bolt onto their pharmacy to, to give additional income and offset the challenges that they're seeing, the cost challenges they're seeing across the business. So I'd say to your friend that he wants to be looking at services, it's important and will become an increasingly integral part of pharmacy as we go forward. That is very interesting because if you look at the news that's coming out, like the advice from the NHS, it looks as if 
with the M category reductions. The aim is really to remove pharmacies from dispensaries and put them in front of patients and make them service-based pharmacies. But it seems what you're saying is, even though that is the message that's being given, the funding is still very much dispensing. Yeah, I think that that is the case. Uh, The five-year deal, obviously, which we're still involved with at the moment, that did signpost very much as pharmacies should be looking at pushing their activity towards service-led provision. But it's inevitable at the moment that pharmacists will continue to drive dispensing because that's where they get most of their income from. So until that actually changes significantly, I think you'll still see this as a dispensing model. There's a lack of long-term strategy for the overall NHS plan. And until that strategy changes, provides decent reimbursement for providing those services, the businesses that will continue to see, give values on and sell will be, the backbone of that will be dispensing. And if you're not dispensing from your, you know, your bricks and mortar pharmacy, you haven't got patients coming through the door to provide services to. So there's always going to have to be a, you know, a healthy mix of the two. But you know that mix does need to change. But it uh, also needs to be the NHS funding needs to change as well in, in how that's provided. I'm really glad you brought the fact that if you don't have prescriptions, so everyone very big conception in the pharmacy world is prescription is your footfall. So if you don't have someone coming in for prescription, you don't have the opportunity to offer them all the service. You can't show them what you're doing. You know, you can't show them how good you are at what you do and what else you can provide them unless they're coming to get their script from you. And, um, you know, that will obviously move on potentially to talking about online pharmacy. But, uh, you know, that is a standout reason why I think there's a, a you know healthy-ish future for community pharmacy on the high street or within those communities. I'll add to that, yeah, they, I, th- I think the services part is playing a bigger role gradually. There's more services getting added, like recently there's been blood pressure monitoring and hepatitis C testing, so gradually we're seeing get more services being added to the contract. Also, from the report, we looked at the everything that's affecting the sector, and with our current climate, with our high cost of living, electricity bills and with all of those things that will basically impact pharmacy contractors and pharmacy owners, not even to mention the loss of staff and the staffing issues. What advice would you give a contractor right now on how to manage or to weather these issues going into the future? The issue you've got, Nana, is that these issues, the headwinds that pharmacy is seeing at the moment, they're headwinds that are being seen in every other sector as well. So it's not unique to pharmacy. So employment challenges aren't unique to pharmacy. Supply issues and supply costs aren't unique to pharmacy. Interest rates aren't unique to pharmacy. And therefore, it is very difficult to say to a pharmacist what you can do to actually manage those. The only thing I would say is that what pharmacies and pharmacy contractors need to do is keep doing well what they're doing well, you know, looking at their business, looking at additional services they can you know, add to, to offset some of the challenges. We, we see a lot of pharmacists at the moment you know, looking at services like earwax removal services. Now, that's one that seems to be very much a go-to service at the moment and is a lucrative service and a service that's very much in demand. So you know, the, the, the problem is somebody's still got to provide that service. So if they're providing that service, are they then dispensing or offering other services? So, But I think they, you know, a pharmacy contractor has to look at that. And then the other thing is they've just got to keep an eye uh, on the checks and balances of, of what they're buying, how they're buying, and making sure that they're buying well. You know, We all know there's challenges in the supply chain at the moment in terms of drug prices, etc. But pharmacy operators need to keep a close eye on that so that they can actually protect their margins as well as they can. And hopefully, as 
the economy settles down and, and we get through the, the difficult period that we've seen in the last probably two to three months, you know, we, we will see things start to return to some sense of normality. That's a really interesting answer, Tony. Is there from Carl and John, John, do you guys have any advice that you'd like to give of a new pharmacist coming in or a contractor that has to face these headwinds? In terms of existing contractors, you know, there's advice you can offer. You, you, you know, we've, we've already talked about how hard they're working to keep the doors open and lights on. Um, you know, lights on, you know, you've got to look at your own business and look at the people walking through the door, the demographics in your area and, and just play to your strengths or, or, you know, add to the strengths that you already have. Practical things, you know, that's not for us to talk about, you know, talking about keeping the lights on, you know, change your light bulbs perhaps, but uh, I don't think there's there's anything that we can practically offer contractors to escape some of the you know, those headwinds that everybody's feeling at, at, at the moment. In new buyers, they just need to do their homework, really get their numbers straight before they, they take the plunge and, and, and buy their first pharmacy, essentially. I'll add to that. The, the operators I speak to on a daily basis, more of the owners are actually doing the buying themselves again. They're keeping a close eye on what they're purchasing from suppliers. So it's, it's pretty much daily calls to all the suppliers to get the best prices to improve the gross profit margin of the business. I find that a lot now. I'd add to that. I think absolutely conversations I had with, with good contractors, like Carl says, who might have stepped away from being really on the tools when it comes to buying and, you know, handing that over to, you know, a paid employee. They've stepped back into the breach on that one, really concentrated on making sure that margin is as, as good as it can be, um, whereas they might have taken their eye off the ball on it previously. Um, yeah, anecdotally, I've had conversations several times in the last couple of weeks with people who are, with multiple pharmacies or single pharmacies, just retaking that role essentially. Um, so I suppose, you know, that is one thing to look at. Probably as a business owner, you're the best person to make those decisions essentially. So who are the biggest buyers and sellers in the market right now? And what do we think is driving that trend? In the North, prior to the podcast, I just reviewed last year and this year, you know, the businesses which I'd sold, you know, stripping out some of the the larger group stuff, kind of single assets and the and the pairs of pharmacies, you know, across Yorkshire, Humber, and the Northwest. It's broadly split a third, a third, a third between first-time buyers, operators of um, pharmacies with you know one to three in their portfolio, and then sub ten. That's that's the north. So, you know, take from that, you're, you know, the, the the key market for John Booth selling pharmacies in the north of England for Christian Co. Um, is existing contractors with less than 10 pharmacies and i think what's driving that is they're seeing opportunities in their local area uh, add to their portfolios i think the most robust and competitive part of the market is those pharmacists who have zero pharmacies want to buy their first pharmacy so yeah certainly operators with zero to 10 pharmacies is a hot spot for me when i put a new business into the market and which groups are doing the most selling at the moment then if you look at it from a general market point of view, I think corporate operators are looking at some form of divestment strategy at the moment, and you know, whether it's on market or off market. So I think we're, we're seeing you know, quite a few of the corporates looking at their estates and looking at how they can actually improve their retained estate. So they are selling probably more marginal or more remote pharmacies. So I don't think it's who's selling more or who's, who's selling less. I think it's just a, a common theme across the, the corporate market that, and also the larger independents are, are tidying up their estates as well. But I, th- I think the positive to that, Nana, is that where these businesses do come to market, there is a ready supply of 
purchasers looking to to acquire. So we we've been involved without mentioning specific names, you know, on a number of projects just recently. And where we've bought pharmacies to market, we've seen a range of first-time buyers, independent contractors and small multiples all going for it. If you look across the UK, that third view is mirrored across the UK in terms of the, the appetite we see. A good example is we just had a corporate disposal in Scotland that was sold a couple of weeks ago and it was 13 offers on it. So it shows the appetite and that was a mix of first-time buyers, local independents and, 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 and small groups. Um the, the the seller decided to go with an existing operator because they thought right they could get the deal done quickly, which which was the case. Um, but there was many first time buyers and other independents that missed out. That's very interesting. So I was just thinking. So like the friend I was speaking to who is thinking of buying. So as a new buyer, if I was wanted to buy a pharmacy, what kind of things would you would I have to look out for when choosing my first pharmacy to buy? I think you've got to be all over the market. You know, you've got to be keyed into the resources. You know, the the, the agents who are selling pharmacies. Or if you if you're locum in in a particular area, you've got to get those relationships with the with the contractors who own the pharmacies who who, who might be looking to sell them directly off market. I think it's more important to really have your ducks in a row in terms of it's really competitive buying your first pharmacy. Remains so. Will continue to remain so. And I think to give you the best chance having your ducks in a row ready, i.e. Um, having an accountant ready to advise you. I think probably more importantly in this, you know, in the current situation, this current day and age, having a really good broker to help you navigate finance and, and give you some, you know, really clear picture on what your budget looks like. And then, you know, even ahead of finding a pharmacy, having, you know, having that team ready, that um, corporate lawyer, solicitor, and again, your accountant ready and waiting to advise, having your advisors ready because you know supply and demand is low on the ground and as i say really competitive so you just got to be ready to go if the right opportunity comes along the, the important thing for a first-time buyer is engagement and you know to, to have those factors covered when they come to look for their pharmacy they need to understand you know what their financing ability is their capability from that side of things from our point of view we've got the associate company christy finance who offers specialist advice in the pharmacy sector and they deal with a lot of first-time buyers. They're able to guide them through the process in approaching finance, undertaking business plans, etc. And I think it's really important they do that at the outset. It's not necessarily doing the business plan, but it's having an eye on what they're going to have to do when they find a pharmacy. Yeah, engaging a solicitor, understanding the differences between what is an asset sale and a share sale and, and the complexities of, of both of those different structures is important. And then, as John says, engaging an accountant to understand that when figures do come through on the business they're interested in, they can get those interpreted in a way that supports the financial application to the bank. So I think it's engagement from that side of things, but also from, from an agent's point of view. I mean, obviously, Christine Co. aren't the only agent in the market, but what all agents thrive on is feedback. And so if we've got an engaged buyer who is giving us feedback on the opportunities that we put to them that helps us give our clients feedback so you know we crave engagement as much as a first-time buyer or an independent contractor should do so as well so the messaging is basically speak to christy as much as possible absolutely so as a new first-time buyer i've got my accountant i've got my lawyers i've got my ducks in a row i'm ready i found a pharmacy that i'm interested to buy what are some of the biggest challenges that you see in the market when it comes to completing a sale or getting an approved for a purchase? 
once you get a deal agreed or an, an offer accepted, it, yeah, the biggest part is is um, applying for finance. Yeah, you can do that directly with the bank, um, but a lot of first-time buyers tend to go through a, an experienced broker who have got the contacts at the banks in the sector, all the banks that are lending, and they tend to get the best rate for the first-time buyer. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's speaking to an experienced broker and what a first-time buyer will tend to find that most brokers will advise that you need a good sort of 20 25% deposit to put in. So as John said earlier, it's getting your ducks in order. Um, so it's really applying for finance, business plan, to the bank, once you get an offer in principle, the buyer should be in a position to proceed. But um, that's that's the biggest hurdle was is get an answer from a bank, which recently it has got a bit more difficult with the interest rates rising. Obviously, what's happened in the economy, but there's the good thing is a lot of the banks are still lending in the sector, and the rates are still quite competitive against what you see in other sectors. Yeah, I mean, what Carl says is there's still plenty of appetite amongst the, the banking fraternity to, to do deals in pharmacy. But um, what a lot of first-time buyers might not understand is that not all banks will lend to first-time buyers. So I think that, that's, again, when the broker comes in, you know, who to approach and, and how you make that approach is absolutely crucial if you're going to get anywhere with, um, you know, wrestling the, the cash out the, out the banks at the moment. Whilst, you know, they have that appetite to support deals, you've got to know how to propose the, the deal to the bank and, uh, and and ultimately which bank to go to, depending on what profile of buyer you, you, you are at that point in time. And, and buyers they need to understand what they're actually buying. If it's, you get an asset sale or a share sale, and a lot of the, the pharmacy sales, what we see now are share sales, um, a high percentage of them are. So they, they need to understand exactly what they're buying. So they need a obviously instructor accountant, an experienced accountant to advise on what they're buying. And obviously, speaking to an experienced solicitor that's that's dealt with share sales before. You've mentioned share sales and asset sales. I mean, what is the difference between the two? If, if you look at a share sale, Nala, a share sale, you are buying the business as it is at the moment. So it's a corporate structure. So you're buying a limited company. So they basically give the deliveries, they do the... So you have your staff and everything as it is already. So, well, that's the same with both, but it's just the, 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 the corporate structure that you're buying, basically. So you're buying a limited company. And when you buy the limited company, you are buying the historic liabilities of that business at that point. So there tends to be more due diligence, financial and legal due diligence undertaken on a share sale than you would have to on an asset sale. So for an asset sale, you're effectively just buying the goodwill of the business and the associated property interest. And that is forward-facing rather than backward-facing. So you're not really buying any historic liabilities in the main. There may be one or two that, that flow through, but in the main, you are only forward-looking rather than backward-looking. So it tends to be a more simplified process. The issue I was going to come on to, on the, depending on the sales structure, is that in, in each process, you are going to have different regulatory processes in the change of ownership. So for an asset sale for a first-time buyer, they're first going to have to get fitness to practice approval, and then they'll get their change of ownership application submitted. For a share sale, because there isn't an actual change in ownership, it's just a change in shareholders, there is a retrospective uh, notification to GPHC that you've got a new superintendent pharmacist. So the process looks more simple from a regulatory approach from that side of things, but there are still different challenges within the different structures that you look at. But you know, certainly if a first-time buyer is looking at an asset sale, it's very important they, they get 
very much ahead on their fitness to practice application. They chase that regularly with PCSE, making sure that that is, is being dealt with and making sure that they submit an accurate application because if they don't, they will get the application coming back to them for further amendments, etc., which will inevitably delay process. I think in our review, Anana, we, we talk about the timelines and you can see the different timelines between share sales and asset sales. Obviously, that regulatory process, that application process for fitness practice and change of ownership makes a significant difference or delays the timing significantly. So, you know, average asset sale is 40 weeks from our recent experience and an average share sale is 27 weeks. So a 13-week difference because of that regulatory process. Very interesting. There is another thing that I picked up looking at the report, which was quite surprising to me, really, which is the increase in dispensing items with the online pharmacies. When I was practicing, it used to be a huge thing about losing prescriptions to online pharmacies and also having dosset boxes being something that GPs stopped prescribing weekly and would just prescribe it monthly. And it was a huge effect on the prescription numbers. And I was quite surprised to see from the report that there was actually an increase in dispensing items in community pharmacy. So with this increase in prescription items, so that's more work, and coupled with reduction in reimbursement and with the staffing issues that we mentioned before, should this increase be seen as an advantage for independent pharmacies or a burden? I think it comes back to our earlier point about, you know, unless people are coming to pick up their prescriptions, you know, have an opportunity to get them across the threshold enough for them services, those, you know, what can be pretty lucrative services. So, yes, it, it certainly means more hard work, but it certainly shouldn't be looked at as a disadvantage. You know, the more items coming into community pharmacy, ultimately, the more potential patients. I think that has to be a good thing. I, I don't know what you guys think to that. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, you know, one of the challenges is that if, if you're not dispensing, you haven't got income. But the other challenge is, a more recent challenge is that, you know, the cost of drugs on the drug tariff aren't necessarily representing what people are buying at. So, yeah, there are challenges around that. And we constantly see the concessions list increasing, but it doesn't increase as quickly as it needs to. So if there's price hikes at a certain stage, there seems to be some inertia in the system at the moment in actually getting contractors recompense for what they're actually buying effectively. So I think as long as people are taking on additional dispensing activity and that is at a reasonable level and adequate refunded or reimbursed level, I think don't think that's an issue. But again, just echoing what John says, you know, that additional activity, if you're getting more patient access, more patient engagement, it allows you the opportunity to to offer further services, the the, the blood pressure monitoring. Yeah anything like that. So I think that it is really important. And that's where you know, we see a lot of people at the moment when they're buying pharmacies, the first thing they're looking to do is increase their, their dispensing activity. And the report also showed that there was a more of an increase in local independent pharmacies when it came to prescription items compared to the corporate ones. Um, what do you think underlined this increase? Independence adapted really well to um, obviously becoming a lot busier over the pandemic, owners have been more hands-on and they have offered a more continued of service. It's all hands on deck and whereas maybe other operators that have had issues with staffing, there's maybe been longer waiting times. But yeah, what we found in the independent sector, they've, they tend to manage that a bit better. And I think a lot of that's down to the owners being hands-on. 
possibly more committed to providing that service because at the end of the day, the buck stops with them. You know, if you're an independent operator, that's my view on it. Yeah, just to add as well, I think, you know, as a, a local independent, you're, you're able to adapt far better to local needs, local patient needs. With a lot of the larger operators and corporate operators, they have a model which is very difficult to adapt to local needs in a timely manner. Whereas if you're an independent contractor, you, you can do that far more effectively. And I think the other point is it's consistency of staff and personnel. People buy people. And so if you're going into your pharmacy and you're seeing the same pharmacist you know, week on week, month on month, year on year, you develop a relationship with that pharmacist. And I think that is really important. That's something that bricks and mortar pharmacies you know, certainly offer you know, over online pharmacies and also independents can offer more consistency over corporate pharmacy. Because it, be- it becomes your pharmacy. Because what I was in practice, that's why there are people that will come in and be like, this is my pharmacy. I think that's that's the thing that the independents get to do a lot better. I'm glad you brought up the online pharmacies and the online platforms because what the report also shows that even though there was an increase in community and independence and there was also an increase in items in the online platforms, we've always seen those two industries as competitors. A lot of the bricks and mortars see the online pharmacies as coming to take their business. But I think what this report actually shows that could it be that a pie is big enough for all of them to exist together? The threat of online pharmacies has been a, a topic of discussion for many years now. However, in the overall scheme of things, the service only represents a small percentage of the overall items dispensed. Also remember that the service isn't available in Scotland or Northern Ireland. In past pharmacy reviews, we have spoken about Bricks and Clicks Pharmacy, which is a, a traditional community pharmacy that has embraced technology improving the, the patient journey. Traditional pharmacies can offer not only online pharmacies provide, but so much more in terms of patient contact services and obviously confidence. And what we see in Scotland, Northern Ireland, they've got the Pharmacy First Service where that should help drive footfall into pharmacies for minor ailments and take pressure off GP practices. The traditional community pharmacies should be able to adapt a lot more And it's all about, obviously, providing better care to the patient through advice and speaking to the pharmacist once they're in the the store. Just to add to that, just come back to what I said earlier, people buy people. And I think that's bricks and mortar pharmacy, community pharmacy has that at the heart of their their service delivery. People can see who they're dealing with. They can go in for advice. Online services, they're all more restricted in, in the advice they can provide. If it is advice, it's advice at the end of a phone. And I think, yeah, that is something that bricks and mortar or bricks and clicks, if you want to still call it that, is, yeah, they can champion against their competitors, basically, in the online platforms. I came into Tony's team three years ago, so kind of fresh into the sector, and it was a big topic then. And I must say from day one, I, I was never convinced that it was size of the pie was big enough for all, but I was never convinced that online pharmacy was going to be a problem for community pharmacy, you know, as a patient of a community pharmacy myself. And anecdotally, when I speak to good contractors of all shapes and sizes, independent contractors, this doesn't feature in the conversations as one of their gripes. You know, in fact, I've had conversations in the last couple of weeks with some really good contractors and we've brought, discussed this subject with them and um, they're, they're fairly confident to say that they they, they haven't lost in the last five, six years any items to uh, to online pharmacy. From a buyer's perspective, when you're trying to flog a pharmacy, 
people only concentrate on the competition that sits within the retail pharmacy within a mile or two miles from them. No one says, I'm worried about that DSP. So I think the size of the pie is big enough and ultimately bricks and clicks, bricks and mortar pharmacies, the owners of those and the future owners of those fancy their chances that they can deliver a service that will keep them in business, basically. From my point of view, I think, you know, it's going to be a, an ongoing conversation and, you know, independent sector does need to have regard for online pharmacy. And as long as they keep doing what they're doing, they're embracing automation, they're, they're providing uh, service apps, patient service apps, etc. They can, you know, get those patients glued to them a little bit more. They, they can offer that and more to those patients. So as long as they are not standing still and they're embracing the technology because obviously the online pharmacies, they're improving their technology, they're improving their delivery services. We see that week in, week out. As long as independent pharmacy is doing the same, I think you know, they can more than rise to the challenge and meet the competition head on. Absolutely. I think when the online pharmacies first came into the market, it was the first shock and that was the first fear of it. And when I was in practice, one thing I always used to say is, the online pharmacist will probably get that patient that hasn't been used to coming into a pharmacy. Because once you do go into a pharmacy, that's when you get the people service. That's when it becomes your pharmacy. But for someone who has just been diagnosed with hypertension, it's just taken one tablet. For them, the convenience of going to online would always be the action of going into the pharmacy because they don't know what a pharmacy gives to them. And I feel like once the patient gets to that stage where they realize what a pharmacist does and the service they receive, that's when they always go back to the bricks and clicks pharmacy. I like that. I think that that should be a new thing instead of bricks and mortar, bricks and clicks. I'm going to bring up the staffing issue, the elephant in the room. We've seen recently, including myself, a lot of community pharmacists move away from that industry and go to the GP sector, which has obviously accounted for the high cost of locum and the high locum rates seen around the country and shown in your report. With all this higher cost and the lower reimbursement and all of this, what does the future hold for contractors and what are the solutions when it comes to taking care of the staffing issues? Well, one of the challenges is that, as you, you quite rightly pointed out, we're seeing a, a drain or there's a sector seeing a drain of qualified pharmacists and technician support. Uh, going to PCNs and GP services, and and they're going, you know, to those services with the support through the additional roles reimbursement scheme, where doctors have got funding to, to actually attract pharmacists to those roles, as well as other you know social care providers, etc. So, you know, that is a real challenge. That isn't there for pharmacy, and you know, with that happening, you are seeing locum rates increase because pharmacist resource is more scarce than it was because people have moved to these roles. And it, it is creating a challenge. The funding, if you go back to the five-year deal, it was always said that that five-year deal would only work in a low inflationary economy. And today we're in anything but a low inflation economy and we don't really know where that's going at the moment. So you know, there has to be some recognition of that. From my point of view, it's just a personal opinion, but there has to be some recognition of that in the funding model that, that the sector is seeing. If you go back to 2016, the funding cuts in 2016, pharmacy contractors were asked to find efficiencies in their business model, which they did and they found, and they've continued to find efficiencies. But there's only so many times you can keep squeezing that to find efficiencies. And yeah, they're at a stage now where you've got rising interest rates, you've got increasing staff costs, and something has to give, in my view. 
And you know, we have to support what is an incredibly important primary care role. You know, they are the forefront of primary care. They continue to be that. Doctor services are still very restricted. And trying to get an appointment at my GP service is incredibly difficult. And it is easier to go to your pharmacy. So you know, pharmacy are, are still seeing a lot of that. And therefore, there has to be some recognition from my point of view. I, I, it's not an easy one because, you know, as it stands at the moment, we've seen in our report that locum rates have increased uh, from 2021. They've increased again this year. And, you know, that is a real challenge to any contractor having to, to manage that additional cost. It's, it's not sustainable in the long term. My concern is there seems to be no solution uh, of this drain of pharmacists going to primary care. In Scotland, we, we, we're seeing the highest locum rates in, in the UK, particularly in the north of Scotland, up in the Highlands or Inverness, which resulted in a lot more pharmacies coming to the market because the owners can't staff them. The problem is anyone looking at it, like an existing operator or a group operator, they're going to struggle to staff it as well. So some of them are becoming quite difficult to sell because owners can't find pharmacists. So it's really more of a the perfect buyer for these pharmacies would be a, an owner pharmacist, providing they can get locum cover in as well, which at this moment in time, it's ex- extremely expensive. I think um, also, you know, it comes back to a lack of long-term planning and strategy within the NHS. You know, I hear very rarely of, of localised stories where the workforce is shared and it works brilliantly across the PCN and, and the community pharmacy, but it's, it's a conversation you have all too rare and, if it works in one place, why can't it work everywhere? So I think, you know, there's there's a finite number of um, good quality community pharmacists. And I suspect that if you added up all the full-time roles and the hours that they work, there's there's enough resource there with a little bit of out-of-the-box thinking to do all the roles that primary care ultimately needs across the network. I'm so glad you said that because that is basically one of the things that I think the industry needs as well, because I think what you get from being a PCN pharmacist or being a GP pharmacist is that quality of life and that timing. But like I said, the joy and the satisfaction you get from being a community pharmacist can never be filled by being a PCN pharmacist, that interaction you get. So I think a model which allows someone to do both or allows sharing between those industries. They're out there, Nana, but they're not prevalent. And that kind of brings me to my next question, basically, with the plan to make all community pharmacists and all pharmacists prescribers. How do you see that innovation fitting into our community pharmacists as they are now? It can only be a benefit. Am I right in thinking that it's uh, by 2026, all pharmacists coming out of uh, university will be qualified independent prescribers? So I think that's got to be a good thing because obviously it means there is a, another point of contact in primary care other than the doctors to be able to you know, have a an ailment prescribed for. I mean, obviously, there, there's going to be limitations on that, but I think it can only be a benefit to, to community pharmacy. And again, without trying to beat the same drum, it's all about protecting that service. You know, pharmacy is the frontline service, as, I, as far as I'm concerned, for primary care. And, you know, they can continue to deliver more, but they need funding to do that. I think the best contractors are not just upskilling themselves, they're upskilling their, you know, everybody in the, in the business. Um, so I think, you know, the more you can do to upskill from counter assistant to ACT, you know, across the boards, the better your business is going to be, quite honestly. You know, it's not just about IPs, it's about everybody, who, you know, who opens the door. Those are great answers. 
Another thing that I've been basically having a look at, like you said, John, these models do exist, but they're few and far in between. And it's the whole thing about innovating in pharmacy. I think the and the five-year contract and the NHS has basically kind of made it quite clear that community pharmacy can't stay as it is. And with finding efficiencies and finding things that can be improved, there is a sense that this sector needs to move on to pharmacies being more patient-facing and being more service-orientated. Do you think the community pharmacy as it is has embraced the model of moving the pharmacist from the dispensary and basically letting staff members such as ACTs and other ACDs control the dispensary and therefore freeing up the pharmacist to do much more services? I think if you look at it as legislation stands at the moment, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of discussion going on and consultation around hub and spoke at the moment. Uh, currently, Hub and Spoke only works within the same corporate structures, and we see clients out there that have got you know, reasonable sized groups where they've put automation in the centre of their group and have been able to take probably sixty percent of their you know, repeat dispensing or, or dispensing activity out of those individual community pharmacies that they operate, allowing their pharmacists more time to deliver services. So, I think as it stands at the moment, yes, those who operate within corporate structures and of size can actually certainly do that and they've got the ability to do that through automation and hub and spoke obviously we're, we're waiting the outcome of what's happening with the hub and spoke consultation to see whether that's open up to non-corporate structures as well and that'll be an interest to see uh, probably i think it's back end of this year beginning of the new year before they report isn't it but uh, you know if that happens it will certainly help all pharmacy deliver more services but it's a question of looking at how that is going to be costed and how that works for independence if, if that relaxation of the hub and spoke model regulation does happen. So you'd be looking at solutions for independence and smaller group pharmacies when it comes. To, and I think you're absolutely right. I think hub and spoke is kind of the ideal way to free up your pharmacists because I always used to say as pharmacists, having trained for five years and having to stand in a dispensary taking a box is an absolute waste of a pharmacist's resource. I think our resource comes more in talking to the patient, doing our reviews and doing those kind of services that we're trained to do when we become pharmacists. And that's what you want to do. And I think that also underlines the move into PCNs where pharmacists think they're going to be more clinical and be more effective and use their lessons instead of just standing in a dispensary checking. So I think it all kind of comes together and I'm so glad you guys have joined us and we've had this conversation. I do have one final question before we end this. So in your experience in and in all the sales and everything that you have come across, what do you think is the one thing that makes a new pharmacist buyer ready to buy? Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm and motivation. You've got a lot of new pharmacists coming into the marketplace who are enthusiastic, they're passionate about what they do, you know, they've studied, they've trained, they've qualified, and they want to offer a patient care outcome. And I think those that come into the market who are enthusiastic have got confidence in the long-term future of the sector. You know, they're the ones that are, are going to do well. They're, they're looking at the services. They're looking at all the dispensing aspects that they have to provide under the contract. And if they're ticking the box on all those and they're doing that with enthusiasm and I suppose a smile, I think that really helps them. On the back of that, you know, just a, a vision of what they want to bring to the sector, essentially. The enthusiasm comes hand in hand with that, knowing what they can do to improve what they're requiring. 
unlike some of the people that we've referred to in this uh, in this chat, having a clear long-term strategy about what their vision is to, um, you know, be better for the patients every single day. And finally, Carl. Yeah, obviously, passion for the profession. I think if they go to work with passion and they believe in their profession and they, they show that to their customers, patients, then I'm sure it can only benefit their business going forward. Thank you guys. Thank you for your time and for this great discussion. I have learned a lot from this session and I hope our listeners have gained a better understanding of the pharmacy market. A positive point that I found from our discussion is the increase of prescription numbers across the industry, which clearly shows a positive uptrend. And that despite the challenges community pharmacies have been facing, pharmacy truly is here to stay. One thing that I didn't know, which I found very interesting, was the bricks and clicks. And I think bricks and clicks is a very interesting concept and is a way forward for community pharmacy. A challenge I will be keeping my eye on from this discussion will be the profession's movement to PCNs and what independent prescribers do come and offer to community pharmacy. It's something I'd like to see develop over the years. You will find more content on the CND website, links for the market review, and to continue the conversation, you can leave us a message at the CND community. We have all the links and everything you need in the subs below, so please have a look at them. For more information, also visit Christian Coles. A link to the website is also available below. Thank you very much for spending this time with us. For more podcasts and discussion, please follow and subscribe. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you and goodbye.